The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Guests today are deeply involved in the areas of relief work for impoverished countries, suffering from the aftermath of wars and natural disasters. Ankel Aloma is Executive Director of Food for the Poor, the number one international relief and development charity in the United States, feeding two million of the poorest people every day. He's been heavily involved in the Haiti natural disaster in recent weeks and reports on its current status, having just returned in the last several days from its alarming scenes of despair and desolation from the Dominion Republic. Pat O'Brien has been involved for many years in the fight against cross-contamination of infectious diseases. His company employs experts to continue this mission in minimizing the effects of diseases including MRSA, E. coli, H1N1 swine flu, prevalent in our society today. Their technology also works towards significant reduction in the spread of disease in the aftermath of natural disasters, such as that one in Haiti. As fears grow for the security and health risks following Haiti's recent disaster, Angel Aloma and Pat O'Brien join me today to talk to the urgent and immediate action required to reduce the real threat of spread of diseases to the mainland United States and abroad. Gentlemen, welcome to you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Very much. What I'd like to do is start off, Pat O'Brien, obviously, so that you have been on the program uh, several times now. Uh, but what I would like to do is, Mr. Aloma, uh, would you give me a brief overview of the Food for the Poor organization? Yes, um, well, we are a 28-year-old organization. As you mentioned earlier, we're the largest in the United States of the international charities right now. We are 97% funded by private donation and private donors. And uh, our name has become somewhat of a misnomer because now we are involved not only in food, but very active in building homes, in digging water wells and doing water projects with cisterns and gravity-fed water projects. We are also involved in education, in medical and in a lot of, in the last seven to eight years, we've been very deeply involved in development and self-sustainable projects like microenterprise, agricultural, aquacultural projects. Now, your mission statement on your official website states that essentially you are supporting Latin America. Uh, and the Caribbean. And the Caribbean. So Haiti uh, comes under that mandate, I take Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And you've been to Haiti very recently, or you've been to the Dominion Republic? Uh, yes, I, I was in Haiti um, six days after the earthquake for a week, and I have just returned today from the Dominican Republic, actually. And Patrick O'Brien, I wonder if I could ask you, sir, to give us a brief synopsis of your work. I understand that uh, your company, AirTech Solutions, is looking very seriously at visiting Haiti with a view to spreading special chemicals to reduce the, the disease there. Could you give us a, a very brief e overview, please? Well, we've made a, a lot of headway with both the Haitian uh, government, um, the government of Port-au-Prince, the tourism minister. Uh, we're working with a congressman, Nick Lamson, out of Texas. He's a former congressman uh, just a year and a half ago away from Congress, but has uh, tremendous contacts within the U.S. government. Uh, we're getting tremendous cooperation in our plan. We have done many projects cleaning up uh, buildings, uh, both inside, and we now have the facility to be able to clean up outside and eliminate microbes. Our plan is to uh, spray 100 square miles of Haiti from the port through the airport and out on an arc 100 square miles. Our product has been proven that it is acceptable to work with that. 
We are also working with another manufacturer that has a mosquito product that is a long-lasting killer of adult mosquitoes and larvae. One application will work for a whole uh, mosquito season. So we're preparing to go down there with 30 of our people and do both inside buildings that need it, especially those areas where health care is being given and those areas where uh, there are tent-type uh, cities that are uh, to be able to eliminate uh, disease. Uh, and we're also, of course, looking to try to reduce the amount of disease in the country by a minimum of 85%. That's our goal. And Mr. Aloma, can I come back in with you, sir, now, um, talking about your mission? I was interested and picked up in your prior statement that, in actual fact, you were focused not only on food but also on shelter. And I know that in conversation with Pat in recent days, uh, clearly it is the shelter that is so badly needed. What is your participation in that in regards to Haiti now? Have you seen for yourself the situation of infrastructure and how it stands at this stage? Well, right now the situation is very dire because Port-au-Prince has not been cleared of rubble and uh, I don't see any major efforts in beginning to do that as yet. It's They had been talk about moving the capital city, which has not worked ever in any other country in the world that that has been attempted. I haven't heard any talk of that recently. Um, the international community and um, you know, is... is still interested in Haiti from many conferences that I have attended, but again, there are a lot of obstacles to overcome in working in Haiti. You know, the lack of infrastructure that we all know about, which is where I'm hoping the international community will take a very active stance. I know that the United States spoke about power plants, two power plants in Port-au-Prince, so they can stop being a generator city, and that would be a wonderful first step. It would be great if the international community could come together and do roads and do water and sewerage. I think with those three elements of infrastructure, Haiti would have a much better chance at success. But the very urgent situation right now is to clear rubble or at least give available land where building can start. The NGO community in general and all the conferences I have attended are not in favor of doing intermediate housing, as I was discussing with Pat earlier. We would like to go from tents to permanent structures, because what has happened in countries like Armenia is that, you know, they they built 20 years ago intermediate housing, and those are still up, and the city has become a city of intermediate housing, So, or many cities, actually. So we want to go directly into permanent housing, but it's very difficult because of permits, because of land, because of the rubble in Port-au-Prince. So we are finding this frustration. We are trying to build in areas right now where refugees have left and gone into, like Cap Haitian, who has received thousands of refugees from the capital, um, because those areas are in themselves so very poor that they cannot support an influx of refugees or, or displaced people since they're in their own country. So we are trying to build in those areas to send food and clothing and uh, you know dig wells in those areas, but we're very anxious to begin work in the capital itself, or, or, or at least the surrounding areas of the capital. The closest we've been able to get to is about an hour and a half away in Pierre Payan. We have been able to build some homes and move some of the people from Port-au-Prince, but the numbers compared to the million, 1.3 million who are displaced and homeless, uh, you know, are minimal. Now, Pat O'Brien and myself had the pleasure of bringing a journalist in uh, to a program recently who had been down to Haiti recently and he had discovered and looked for himself around these camps. I think one of them he referred to as the golf course. Uh, He suggested that there were some 400 to 600,000 people displaced in really dreadful conditions. Um, Is that still the status today? Are we still having to uh, accept that those same people are uh, still where they are? I am afraid so. I, as you were talking about, you know, spraying for mosquitoes, I, I thought to myself, you know, there are camps that have 6,000 people living there. Every available piece of land in Port-au-Prince has become a tent city. And I visited one that had 6,000 residents and seven portable toilets. 
with the rainy season and hurricane season fast approaching, this is a recipe for illness and disaster. So we are, we are very concerned with the lack of speed in the sheltering these people who are, you know, so badly displaced. Well, may I ask you, Pat O'Brien, with that in mind, that we have the rainy season, we have the threat of mosquitoes, we have uh, other ailments, infant uh, diarrhea, and goodness knows what else that possibly we don't have any visibility on. What is it exactly you feel can be done, both from the air on and on the ground now, that clearly requires funding from both federal government and international sources that would change the paradigm, try and save a lot more lives right now than, than rather waiting any longer? Well, the product is in place. We have tried to get to the proper authorities with what the price tag would be to do that, and we've justified those prices, and it's just a matter of, of the funding. It is just every place you go trying to work at this system, you have French involvement, you have UN involvement, you have Haitian involvement, and they all have their their domains that you have to go through from a paperwork standpoint. We've been able to accomplish that, and yet we're still not seeing where the funding is coming. You know, the Clinton Foundation has given us some indication that when the Haitian government actually signs off on the project, which they're willing to do, that it would get funded, but not until after the projects actually start. Now, could I ask you, why is it that the Haitian government have to sign off on it in order to save the lives of hundreds of thousands of people? Uh, you know, again, I have no idea, and maybe Angel can help us a little bit regarding this, but it, it's kind of like dealing with the family of, like, New York or Chicago. It's, it's political on both sides. It's almost and I don't want to get in trouble with this, but I'll say it. It's almost as if it's a family-run business, a mafia-type business that you're dealing with in in this land. And they have ways that they've been doing things for hundreds of years, and it doesn't matter which side. There's no left or right. It's all the family. Would you call it that way, Angel? You know, in the in the trade here in the nonprofit world, we say that culture will eat innovation for lunch, and that is very well entrenched in Haiti. The culture, the superstitions, many of the things that people might resent. Now, I agree that the government should be involved in a decision like this. What I can't understand is the sitting on hands and things like that. You know, to me, it seemed like a 15-minute study would give you an answer to this from a government. Of course, the government has been more and more trying to centralize the donations that are given and everything to themselves. And I also worry in regards to that, that I'm hoping the international community will be smart enough to demand accountability every single step of the way. Haiti has been plagued by bad government for 200 years, and I really don't want to judge this government, but, you know, their whole area of government was destroyed, so they have been operating almost in a, in a homeless fashion. But they needed to become centralized and be able to, to make decisions in an efficient manner, because that we, we need to get a little bit rid of the talking and the assessment meetings and all the blah, blah, blahs and get into action because the, the situation is urgent. And, you know, I, I can't see that a government at this point would not see an initiative like the one you're offering and not want to grab it, particularly knowing that there is funding available if they give their approval. Can I ask you, Mr. Aloma, in reference to the charity theatre, I noticed again on your official website that some 96% of receipts actually find themselves to the destination. This right. is clearly a very successful ratio. Is it not true that many of the high-profile charities are not meeting that sort of success? In fact, a lot of the charities are lucky to send at the end of the day any more than 10%. Has there been a problem with the receipts of donations from celebrity events, uh, from many events over the last six months that have also slowed down this process? I 
know that the charities, the major charities like Red Cross and World Vision have been doing a lot of work in Haiti. It's difficult for me to know things that, you know, where celebrities are concerned if the money's getting there or not. Um, but I also have to express some understanding for sometimes what is a slowness. I know when the earthquake happened, um, the second day after that, we had five trucks come in with medical supplies from the, from the Dominican Republic. But we have been in Haiti for 24 years, and we also had the good fortune because we have similar relationship to Jamaica, where we have been working for 28 years. They sent over 150 soldier reservists who came and camped out in our warehouse and offices. And therefore, we could, from the very beginning, start to distribute without any threat of, uh, of any type of disorder. And a lot of the charities who had materials down there to, d- to distribute were paralyzed because of that fear, which is a very reasonable fear in a time like that. And they were heavily criticized, and I felt a little bad about that. We were fortunate because of our relations who we were able to start right away. But I honestly can't comment. I know that when security was no longer an issue, that many of the charities were distributing. I don't think there has ever been that much food in Port-au-Prince, you know, for many, many years. And so I, I don't, you know, know what percentage of what. I do know there are some charities that only 10% of what they take in goes to the... But people have to judge that on their own. I mean, there are watchdogs all over the place with websites that you can check on to see, you know, who does what. As far as getting this infrastructure support into this country and for allowing companies like Airtech Solutions and Pat O'Brien to do their job, is it necessary to go through the Dominion Republic in order to do that? Do you have to actually start with roads and train infrastructure through the Dominion Republic before you can actually do anything in Haiti itself? No, no. I Honestly, at the very beginning when the earthquake happened, there were no flights coming in to, to Haiti. So basically everything had to go through Dominican Republic. But for example, from the border town of Himani, which is about two hours out of Port-au-Prince, the roads were not excellent, but definitely, you know, drivable at that time you know it's really from port-au-prince into the country parts and the rural areas that need to get their produce to market that need to be able to to communicate with the world at large that the roads are i mean sometimes to drive fifty kilometers or a hundred kilometers takes you eight and nine hours you know just from the condition of road you feel as if you're driving on riverbeds and that's as large as we are and as large as world vision is and red cross we cannot afford to build that sort of infrastructure and that's why I'm hoping the international community will not go in piecemeal and say, okay, I'm going to clean up this river and I'm going to um, build this and I'm going to do that, but rather together put really some proper infrastructure that will allow the nation as a whole to have a better option for success. What about for you, Pat O'Brien, what do you need now in order to get access into Haiti? Understanding what has been said there, Can you fly in materials? Can you get materials in through the airport, or do you have to use roadways in order to get all these materials to where they need to get uh, to? We would send the materials through the port, and we have also set up transportation after the product gets there. We have over 1,153 tons of product that we need to get into Haiti, and then it has to be diluted. It's a concentrate, and so we need the water facility to be able to do that. We have a a couple of machines that we have that will produce fresh water, and that's how we're going to manage to do it. While we first get on the ground, we're also looking to be able to go in and service as many indoor facilities as we can as well as we're getting set up to do the, the aerial work. So it will be several different fronts that we'll be working on uh, once we get the green light to go in. For you, Mr. Aloma, what are the implications here? If we go another three or four weeks, possibly six weeks, what sort of situation are we going to have on the ground in these camps? Are we going to have diseases 
Uh, I, very, I very prevalent. that as rain begins, you see, there is only one company in Port-au-Prince that clears the portable toilets. Besides the total disparity between the number of portable toilets and residents in the 10 cities, I mean, there is one 10 city that has 50 to 70,000 people there, day, daytime 50,000, nighttime 70, the 40B Delmas. And I fear that that if these things are not emptied um, appropriately and uh, there is very few there for the number of residents that they're going to be using the bathroom anywhere they can and once rain begins there is going to be black water all over the city and particularly in those areas where the people are now you know in tents and under sheets and under you know cardboard and plastic so it's I would say yes I think the worst could come from an epidemic that could really decimate the population. Now, is that a very dangerous situation? When we had a journalist come in into the program recently, he himself became quite ill, and he's been traveling to Haiti since, I believe, 1982. He was frankly shocked uh, this last time uh, to the point where he was actually questioning whether he would go back again right now. But he, he did become ill. He came back through the Dominion Republic in, into Florida, where there were no checks at all at the port of entry. Now, the concern here is that could we finish up with a pandemic Given the the transportation of the relief workers coming through Florida now, could we finish up with a pandemic even on mainland soil in this country? Up to when last I traveled to Haiti, the border people, when it's done by land, were you know, giving vaccinations. I took three, two or three injections and a couple pills for, for malaria, I thought it was. The malaria threat is also always very prominent. Today I heard a reporter um, from the Miami Herald saying that many of the doctors and nurses who went down as volunteers have left. And as a matter of fact, he was at a hospital where a man was brought in in the back of a truck with typhoid and that... Um, that he actually died in the back of the truck for lack of attention because there was no doctor in the emergency area. So, you know, the, there are so many things that can combine to have a very, a very really serious epidemic. I'm not sure if a pandemic, because really those of us who travel to Haiti frequently are pretty savvy on what we need to do and what we need to avoid and what we need to take to avoid being sick even though occasionally one gets, you know, some stomach flu or whatever. But, you know, it definitely for the Haitian population in itself, I think it is an extremely dangerous situation. I just heard a story. Uh, one of the corporations that I'm involved with that are trying to do the work in Haiti, a friend uh, of mine's closest friends said that they wanted to adopt some children from Haiti. They thought that would be a good way to do it. They went through the proper channels to adopt two children. This was only about two weeks ago. They flew down and uh, only spent two days there and actually adopted the children and brought them back to Indiana. And when they got back, they, of course, went immediately to the doctor and found out all four of them had spinal meningitis as well as a blood. Uh, the children had a blood disease that the doctor said could have only happened with them laying in, in fecal materials for a long period of time. It's very concerning that, you know, one outbreak, yeah, we sit here in Orlando, Florida, and if you figure that an outbreak in Florida were to occur, or Louisiana, or any place in the rest of the world, a lot of the people are coming through Florida and then going through the, the rest of the world that are coming from Haiti, we could easily, I would think, have either an epidemic or a pandemic. Does it surprise you, Mr. Aloma, that in actual fact there are no controls whatsoever at the ports of entry into this country? No, I um, Haiti basically does not have a problem with people trying to get in. And uh, usually there are controls in the opposite direction. Like in the Dominican Republic, they have some guards and controls. But I, I have been into Haiti many times by road, and they have never asked to see documents or passport or anything. They just you tell them I'm going into Haiti, and they let the car through. Let me ask you this, if I may. And correct me if I'm wrong, we have some 400 to 600,000 people in absolutely dire conditions in yes. Haiti today. We seem to have no structure or coordinated effort 
to look after these people some five months after the event. What is this saying about the role of America today? Surely we certainly couldn't say that this is our finest hour. Why is it that we cannot just drop the rhetoric, drop this endless paperwork trail and simply take care of this? I mean, could you give me some sort of uh, perhaps synopsis of that or understanding as to why there is essentially no action being taken from here? I think we are a world of bureaucracy and politics and every decision is taken and made according to that. And I know that in Haiti itself, it's a very complex system and a lot of the issues in in the slowness of the aid actually comes internally from the country. But at the same time, I, I do think we are playing a very dangerous game of Russian roulette with the Haitian population with perhaps five bullets in and one, only one that has a blank. You know, it's it's difficult to lay fingers of blame on anyone, but I I really don't know exactly what the solution would be. I know for us as as nonprofits, we are very frustrated that even what we could do is frustrated by a ton of bureaucracy. So it's, it's difficult for me to put myself in the place of the government or, you know, I'm not sure what the actions really should be at this point, but certainly something should be done. Compared to other missions that you have in the field in other countries, is the Haitian condition made more difficult for you as an organization? Yes. I mean, at this point, you're talking since the earthquake or generally? Since the earthquake. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, does the the frustration of Port-au-Prince being covered in rubble and and not having so far any direct plan? We have been to you know many conferences and uh, as to Haiti's Haiti's future, and we have heard suggestions about building reefs with the cement, of uh, building dumps and you know covering it over, but nothing that has come out with an actual action plan, with a timeline that says, okay, we're going to start next week and we will have this many acres cleared so that anyone you know, who is interested in building, that, that's the frustration for us, that there is no action plan, there is no timeline. And it just goes from one conference to the next, to the next, to the next, and no real, nothing really happening, except in a very micro sense, which is basically what the NGOs can do. What are your plans as an organization in the future with Haiti? Are you going to be concentrating on this country, or do you have other areas that you have to focus on? Well, we have 17 countries, and the major ones of which are Haiti, Dominican Republic, Jamaica, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. But definitely our donors were very focused on Haiti, were very generous you know, for the Haiti disaster. And we are just really anxious to, to get to work. We definitely will not abandon Haiti at all. And we want to really focus much of our attention there at the same time without neglecting our entire mission, which is for the 17 countries. And for Pat O'Brien, what is your next step now in gaining funding for this operation? Well, we, we have not let up. We just had a meeting with Congressman Boehner, the House Minority Leader, within the past week and a half, and other uh, congressmen on the Hill. And there is money that is to be voted on that has been promised to the U.N. but has to be voted on by our Congress. That has not come up yet, that, that bill. That's one of the areas that we're looking at, waiting for it. We have eyes and ears, you know, to be able to get money uh, coming to our direction to do that. And we are working with the Clinton Foundation trying to do the same thing. It just seems as if there, as Mr. Loma said, there is a bureaucracy that is in place that's almost unmovable. Let me ask you, Mr. Loma, one of the things shortly after the earthquake was the rising amount of crime in uh, Haiti. Is that still continuing to go up, or have they got it under control? Actually, um, when the earthquake first happened, I think um, there was a lot of exaggeration in relations to the to the crime and the and the violence. 
because I know when I went there just six days afterwards, I traveled uh, with two or three people in a car. None of the soldiers came with us to the downtown area that was considered to be the most volatile. And the people were very orderly in every distribution that we went. They were very orderly. We set up tanks with water at different tent cities, and they stood very orderly for it. What is happening now is that as frustration sets in and they see no action happening, that they're getting desperation is coming into play. And I've heard of incidents of them taking over trucks and, and, and shooting you know, at trucks that are passing by to, you know, to get them to stop and to loot them and, and this sort of thing. But I, I think it's almost, and I, I, and I don't like to sound as if I'm condoning criminal activity, but I think frustration gets to a point where desperation takes over from good sense. You know, and it's, crime is beginning to get worse again. Speaking to the three mayors of Port-au-Prince almost on a daily basis, that seems to be the main word, frustration, lack of anything happening, many promises, but nothing happening. And from our point of view, looking from the outside in, it appears that it is just a matter of the funding moving and we don't see that happening. Could I ask, and this is open uh, to both of you gentlemen, we are occupying, I think, some 135 countries across the world since World War II, and we have hundreds of thousands of military uh, personnel across the, the world in, in places like Afghanistan and, and Iraq. There seems to be a terrible dilemma here in my mind as to why we are spending so much money constantly and still today in those areas when 700 miles off the shore of the mainland United States you have this absolute devastation and humanitarian disaster looming. Any response to that from either of you gentlemen? Well, as I said earlier, um, politics has a lot to do with this. I think it is politically expedient to be involved in Afghanistan and Iraq at this time. And I can't understand how it would not be thought equally politically expedient to be very involved in Haiti right now. But I, I just don't see them quickly getting beyond the level of speeches and, and politics, you know, and, and promises. And uh, I think really it's such a time for action now. Well, there's another major problem, too, that we're dealing with, and that's the recent BP oil slick in the Gulf, which is taking a tremendous amount of attention and mm -hmm. the press away from what maybe Haiti could have kept in the press for a while and keep people's minds on it. But now with this oil slick surrounding the Gulf, you know, that has taken a lot away. That's something that we're going to have to deal with, and funds are going to wind up being dedicated to that, that probably were uh, going to be directed at Haiti, I, wouldn't, I would imagine. Could I ask you, Mr. Aloma, for some statistics that you have gained from Haiti? I think what I'd like to do is illustrate to our listeners, which I think is most important in the last 20 minutes of this program, of the implications of the responsibilities of ensuring that they are actually contributing to the right charities for the right reasons using every due diligence and in that could you let our listeners know really in a nutshell how poor the situation is in Haiti and, and how they can help and how they should not fall into the pitfalls of those charities who, who are clearly mismanaged. Well, there are some excellent watchdogs actually um, that really give a clear idea of who is doing the work and who is not. And we're not the only charity that is well reviewed by the watchdogs. And, you know, basically people have to see what suits their own, you know, like some people would prefer to give to orphans, others to this, to that. But Charity Navigator um, for Christian Organizations, Ministry Watch, um, the Better Business Bureau, Wise Giving Alliance, um, the um, interaction which we are now in june uh, will be the beginning of our joining it um the um the at the end of year 
December Forbes magazine edition that basically goes over the 200 um, largest charities and rates them for fundraising efficiency and that sort of thing. Um, those are areas that they can, and, and everyone should really go to these, you know, because um, people have to give with confidence today. The world is so filled with cynicism. We have had so many scandals in so many areas, both in corporate and nonprofit and government, that, you know, the public is really cynical. So I would say become educated. Go to all these to the watchdogs and, and read up and see, you know, find out the charities you're interested in and, and put them through the test. Um, for ourselves, um, we have a tremendous website that talks about our work where, you know, you can donate with credit cards. Our offices are in Coconut Creek. Um, a phone call can be made here and one can donate, one can mail a donation in. Um, we have... Uh, the, the advantage we have in Haiti is that we have been there 24 years incorporated, 26 years informally. We have a staff of over 400 people there. We have great experience on the ground. Uh, we, we, we do all the work that I mentioned before of construction of homes, of clean water and food and uh, medical and education and self-sustainability projects. So, you know, we are trying uh, just this last weekend uh, um, we planted 25,000 fruit trees in an area, Keskov, in, in Haiti, um, you know, to be able to start the, the idea of it's not just food for relief, but, but food on a permanent basis for people to be able to feed themselves and to have an income from this. We're doing tilapia ponds and, you know, pangasius ponds to be able to get the protein that so many of the Haitian children are lacking. That's why they have the orange hair and the distended bellies and the, the thin limbs and the lethargic look. So we, you know, basically, um, we are an excellent charity. We're not the only one that's an excellent charity, but, but you know, the donors should really not give blindly, should really educate themselves on the proficiency and the efficiency of these charities. Can you reaffirm, Mr. Aloma, for the listeners, the numbers at the moment of people actually residing in those camps in Haiti? Um, well, they say that 1.3 million people are homeless, and approximately half of those are living in very dire circumstances. So approximately 600 to 650,000 people are living in circumstances that are amazingly poor. Um, there are some who are simply sleeping in the street, and they have blocked off roads with rocks just to sleep on the streets at night. Um, but in the camps, as I said, you know, to go into a camp of 6,000 people and have seven portable toilets for 6,000 people, we who live in a developed nation, I mean, when we lived in a home with two bathrooms with a fairly large family, we were constantly complaining about it. Can you imagine 6,000 people and seven you know, portable toilets, no running water? So we have that situation. Um, the food situation is very difficult. Although we have tried to form um, leadership committees in each of the of the ten cities, so we can distribute food to them, and then they take care of distribution to the camp in general. It is still a challenging process. So it's it's something that really can be quite scary, particularly from a health point of view, particularly from the rainy season starting. And what is the mortality rate currently, and how could that increase with the onset of the rainy season? Well, Haiti, under normal conditions, has one of eight children dying from contaminated water and, uh, and complications of malnutrition. So um, the, the rate right now has likely gone to more like one to five. I saw so many cases in the general hospital there where there were children that were just simply, you know, dying from, from lack of attention. One father had to walk for 15 hours to get medical attention for his child. So, it's, you know, he, the child lost his hand and had a huge gash on his head. He was one of the fortunate ones that survived. But there were many others who, you know, were just too ill. And uh, this situation is only going to get worse if something is not done now. And as you beginning to summarize this, what is the possible implication here that over the next four to f six weeks, if something does not happen in a very meaningful way, whether it's from NGOs or from government or international sources, what is it that we could see occur in that country? 
I think we could see a, ch- a child death, a child mortality situation that perhaps would have a percentage that could be frightening to the world, like perhaps 20%, 30%, 40% of children um, dying from illnesses that could easily be avoided if they were not living under horrendous conditions. And Pat O'Brien, could you come in here and really place in front of us the chances of gaining funding in the next four to six weeks? Uh, I, you know, again, it's uh, it's our prayer. Uh, we know um, we know that we are doing all of the right things, <clears throat> trying to cover all of the right bases. But um, uh, I'd ask your listeners if they would just uh, pray that we do get funding so that we can uh, uh, reduce this disease. I, you know, I I keep hearing I'm getting closer and closer and closer. You know, we want to. Also, uh, it's not just a, a commitment to spray the country one time. Our uh, part of what we're planning on doing is training um, the Haitian nationals to be able to um, keep our work on going. Um, we have a general manager that is hired uh, that will uh, go between Florida and Haiti uh, to see to it that the work is getting done and getting done properly and uh, uh, that just reducing that disease uh, in one time is not our goal. It's an ongoing process, and that, you know, our, our prayer is that sometime here in the next five to ten years, um, our area of destination for tourism is going to be Haiti, and, and I think it's something that's possible to do uh, if um, we can help uh, reduce the, um, uh, the disease and uh, in, and they, they're a country that needs to be totally rebuilt. Uh, at the end of five to ten years, uh, you're looking at a, a brand new country, and um, if it's done properly. But meanwhile, it's safe to say that in the meantime, you could lose a whole generation if we allow it to carry on as it is. Well, if you think of it as uh, in terms of uh, size, anybody that's been to Disney World uh, Orlando is approximately 2 million people. Uh, we have 2 million people in jeopardy. That would be every citizen of Orlando. Um, it's easy to uh, just pick a city uh, that's a million and a half to 2 million and put that in your mind of, of people that uh, are going to die in these literally dire straits that they're in. Um, we need the help and we need it now. And, um, uh, Mr. Aloma's organization is uh, uh, doing their part and it's up now to the the governments, uh, both the Haitian government, the French government that I know is involved. They're actually doing uh, work down there. And uh, the UN, um, all of these, we need to be able to put pressure on these organizations to act, not just to um, um, talk about it. And I have attended three or four of these meetings myself, and all it is is talk, hot air. It's typical politics as usual. It's got to get down to where the work is getting done. Could I just ask you, Mr. Aloma, in regards to your people who spend time in Haiti, any idea, any response from them as they have traveled back to the States of how they feel about this situation, what the trauma is that they experience? Basically, I mean, the situation in Haiti will traumatize anyone that goes there to visit. Even for us who have traveled to Haiti many times under normal conditions, um, for many people, Haiti is a traumatizing country under the best conditions in the world. Under the conditions right now, it is really more than traumatizing. It is completely heartbreaking and mind-boggling. And basically, all our people who come from there feel that sense of frustration that, that um, you know, we were speaking about earlier, except that, of course, being people who are in a different level of society and of different needs, it doesn't become violent, but it needs to become more public in, in many ways. And since we have spoken about government and about and about the the NGOs, and uh, you know, I think we need to also address the press. I, I think our press um, oftentimes suffered from suffers from ADD, and uh, basically they're distracted by, you know, I, I don't want the press to leave Haiti because Tiger Woods has another affair or because, you know, someone is having an affair with their, you know, lesbian lover. I, I think we have to see where the, where the real importance is, and it's important for the press not to follow trend in this particular case, but to lead the trend in the way that is, that is morally correct, which is basically to keep attention focused, 
because the press makes a tremendous difference in the views of the people and in pressuring governments to act also. You mentioned the uh, international community coming into this and offering funding. Could you, could you just expand upon that a bit? Well, when I first went down to Haiti, there were trucks from every single nation in the world, including some of the poor nations. But I know, for example, that there have been meetings in rebuilding Haiti where the international community has been present, and they have each committed to being part of that fight to rebuild Haiti. But uh, so far, and, and I hate to, to sound harsh, but, you know, words cannot help Haiti at this time. It has to be action, and it has to be concerted, organized action, but not action that takes two years of assessment meetings and of conferences and of different talks. It needs to be action for a situation that is life or death, and not one that we think, okay, well, maybe next year we'll take care of it, to realize, to understand that the, that the children of Haiti are literally in danger of death. Not just one or two children or, you know, I'm talking about thousands and thousands of children are in danger of death and we have to do something. And, you know, if they need to put pressure on the government bodies there or here or wherever to get, you know, to, to find resolution for the situation. Is this comparable perhaps to the sort of genocide that we saw in countries like uh, Bosnia? I think genocide is a harsh word because, to me, genocide connotes a certain malice, a certain forethought, a certain um, a certain intention to eliminate a race or a nation. And I don't think that exists here. Um, I think this is more a sin of omission rather than a sin of commission. And if I may use a little religious. Um, interpretation here and uh, but i i definitely think that the results could be similar well i i i understand what you are saying how and yes uh, using the word genocide uh, probably is more applicable to to bosnia but nevertheless the the outcome uh, could possibly be that be, be the same if the government here and the ngo uh, private sector does not do something now today about this so uh, i'm not sure how you would frankly say it any other way lack well, of action <laughs> you know it's the lack of non action is uh, it could lead to that. And you almost question, in dealing with it from the outside, as I have, and Mr. Aloma is, is dealing more from the inside out, which is, I'm glad, why we met. But um, dealing from the outside and trying to get in with a product that we know is is safe and can help, the resistance has been just enormous, as if uh, somebody doesn't want um, Haiti to be uh, rebuilt. Um, that is uh, the impression that you can get <clears throat> at every level that we've dealt on. And we're dealing with the highest levels of, of government in both countries. And we're finding, well, yes, that's a great idea. And we'll get to that. It, it's just, it's like, and the longer it goes, uh, like Mr. Lohm is saying, the more people are going to die. Yes, and Mr. Aloma, I would come back in there and assure you that I'm not making an emotive statement. I think what I'm trying to do is, is prove some sort of frustration at the situation um, in order to, to, to have people uh, um, make some sort of sign here or, or, or pressure more the authorities to, to support organizations like yourselves. I understand. In uh, concluding the program, uh, could I start with you, uh, Pat O'Brien, um, your message for, for our listeners. I know that we are going to uh, receive a, a very heavy uh, listenership today on this program. Could you uh, maybe uh, just conclude here by saying what people need to do, what they need to be aware of in order to immediately change this paradigm? One of the things, and I know your listenership are people that have to do something to actually listen. They have to go to a website and listen. Um, that means they're action people. And to me, um, the more letters, phone calls, um, and the, the amount of interest that they can help generate and put the pressure on the powers to be, 
They know who they are. These are intelligent people that you have as listeners. Um, the more pressure they could put on it to refocus on Haiti, talk to your broadcast stations, talk to your um, uh, to the uh, networks, um, email them, say you want to know more about Haiti. Keep them in the news. That is going to to get the problem solved, I think, quicker than anything else. Um, and in, in the meantime, uh, if there's anyone out there that would like to reach uh, us, um, our my company is AirTech Solutions for You. Uh, it's A I R T E C H Solutions with an S. The number four letter U. dot com, and um, you can reach me, and um, we'd be happy to. Uh, uh, we're just looking for the help, and we're looking for the prayers that we can um, help uh, people like Mr. Aloma and the work that they're doing, uh, and be able to allow their workers to work in a safe environment. Um, that's the, the number one uh, problem, I think, right now, is a lot of people that have been there don't want to go back. And just like um, uh, the photographer reporter that uh, you had on your air, um, he's, he's concerned whether he wants to go back. I have heard this from a, a number of, of health workers. Uh, they're not sure they want to go back and put themselves at risk or their family at risk. Um, without this uh, country getting cleaned up, it's going to be very difficult to rebuild. And Mr. Aloma, could I uh, direct the same question to you? I think Pat was completely correct. Uh, I think that we have to get rid of the paralysis that is existing within each individual now to take individual responsibility and, and actually you know, write, call, speak out, talk about it at, in, in gatherings, because really, in a sense, this may actually also get the news media to pay some attention. And, you know, again, if we're going to play with politics, the news media is very important to have them play the game the right way. And uh, this situation is so dire that, honestly, there is no need for hyperbole. There is no need for exaggeration. There is no need for anything other than to look at the facts. So educate yourselves if you don't know enough about the situation. Um, and uh, there is so much on the Internet, you know, even if it's no longer coming out in the daily newspapers, and there is so much on the Internet about Haiti. Educate yourselves. Become advocates, because they need every single person to cry out now. You know, the, the rocks should be crying out for Haiti. And, uh, and then, you know, from there, then do something. www.foodforthepoor.org, if you would like to donate to us. If not, to whichever organization you feel is of your liking. But do something. Don't, you know, it's, it's, advocacy has to lead to action. And that action could be of any type. It could be, you know, marching to Washington. It could be doing anything that will bring attention to a situation that really is incredibly dire. Ankel Loma, Executive Director of Food for the Poor, and Pat O'Brien from AirTech Solutions for you. I thank you, gentlemen, today. Uh, we do have a very uh, good operating blog at davidgibbons.org, so I hope that you gentlemen will sign up on the feed for that. I'm sure that we'll be getting some comments uh, requiring your feedback. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. And thank you to our listeners today. I hope you have enjoyed this program as much as we have and uh, gained a lot more information on the dire circumstances in Haiti. And again, you can visit davidgibbons.org. There is a, a blog feature. Uh, feel free to uh, comment. I'm sure that these gentlemen will be most happy to uh, respond to any questions that you have. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. <music> David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.